Over the years, I've told you a couple of times, I think, about how my father saved my life when I was just a boy. It's the story of a summertime family reunion gathering that took place at my great aunt and uncle's house with dozens of relatives gathered around their outdoor swimming pool. In the scene, everyone is busy talking and catching up. Kids are running around, people are jumping into the pool and climbing out again. I am about four years old. I do not know how to swim, but I have decided to jump in the deep end. I'm standing there at the edge. My older sister is already in the water, holding on to the side of the pool just below where I am standing. She is telling me not to do it. She is probably declaring that I must not jump in since I don't know how to swim. My four-year-old logic is telling me that she is wrong. I have swim trunks on, so I must be able to swim, just like everyone else who has on their swimsuits is able to swim. Eventually, I jump in. She tries to hold me up, but she can't. Maybe she calls for help. Maybe that's what alerts everyone that something is wrong. People spring into action. My father is farthest away. He gets there first. He saves me. It's a dramatic story, but it's also a satisfying story. There is a crisis. There is someone who needs saving. There is someone who sounds the alarm. There is someone who swoops in. Tragedy is averted. And everything happens in a matter of minutes. And then everyone is able to go back to their lives as they were. There is some collateral damage. Two other adults collide as they too try to jump into the pool to help. One person scrapes their leg, but it is not serious. And if anything, it makes for a better story, a story with more color and excitement, more actors in on the action. And here's the other thing that makes the story acceptable, satisfying even. I, the child, the one who needs saving, I create the situation, but I am still blameless in a sense. How can you fault a four-year-old who thought his swim trunks would hold him up? There's more humor than anything in that, the kind of humor that makes us chuckle at something that could have gone terribly wrong but didn't. It is the laughter of relief. And so it isn't just the people who were there that day who look back and chuckle, but we can laugh as well. Because there's no shame in this particular story of saving. And there's no guilt, no blame. It happened, people responded, salvation came. Stories like that are satisfying in part because they meet our need for resolution, for things turning out right, for a beginning, and then after a brief period of uncertainty or uncomfortableness, an ending. Stories like that satisfy us because they are populated with people who care, who act, who respond. Everyone has a part to play. They all play their part. Me, my sister, my father, my relatives. I am lucky, or maybe blessed, to have been part of salvation stories like that. I know that's true. I am lucky, or maybe blessed, because I have always had people around me who pay attention. I have not been abandoned. I have neither wandered off nor have I been left behind. Salvation, like it comes in that little story, has never been out of reach. But that's not the way it is for everyone. That's not the way it is for us collectively right now. We are in danger, and there's no one to blame, but in another sense, everyone to blame. Salvation will come. Safety will only come 
when somehow the danger has passed or we have decided, we have committed to somehow collectively saving each other. Oh, God help us. In the scripture for this morning, salvation also seems somehow out of reach for the ones who are singing the psalm. Things don't feel promising. The people of Israel, as they sing this kind of psalm, express a feeling that they are on the edge of disaster. Their enemies are arrayed against them. They are drowning. Who will save them? They know and remember the stories of old, the stories of how God saved them before, swooped in to rescue them from danger, even when they had jumped into the deep end of their own accord. But they also know that in this particular moment, they have again stepped to the edge. And maybe they have even jumped over the edge. While they have not been abandoned, they certainly have wandered off. And sometimes that feels like abandonment. O oh, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayer is the line from the psalm that testifies to that. That is, how many times will we stand here at the edge of God's patience? How long until we are rescued, saved again? It may seem foolish, perhaps, but even in this ritualized prayer, they seem to think that after everything that's happened, after all the times they have turned their back on God or made the foolhardy decision or have forgotten to take good care of their own souls and each other's bodies, they can still make a bargain for salvation. Listen again to verses 17 and 18. But let your hand be upon the one at your right hand, the one who you made strong for yourself. Then we will never turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. If God will come to the rescue, then they will call out to God. What's the deal with that? And what comes first? Confession, calling out, a change of habit and attitude, or God's acts of saving, rescuing. In the story from my childhood, I don't think I ever actually called out. I jumped into the deep end of the pool and I don't remember doing another thing after that. I don't even remember struggling. Salvation came, I was saved, even though I never called out for it. I haven't much thought about that over the years, but as I think about it now, it seems significant. Usually we have to cry out. We have to be ready to cry out, to confess, to call out, to beg for help. But then again, usually we are acting within a pattern of behavior. It's one more time that we've done the foolish or selfish thing. We've jumped in the deep end again and again. We've flirted with danger and disobedience again and again. We've needed salvation over and over. So we cry out. But sometimes we don't cry out. We are in the deep water almost before we know it. And we don't cry out. Or maybe we are determined not to cry out. And why is that? Is it because we are stubborn? Stubborn like the little boy who won't listen to his big sister? Is it because we embrace delusion? Embracing delusion like the person who insists that others may get sick, but they won't? Is it because we are unable to adapt or unwilling to change? 
unable to adapt or unwilling to change like the person who keeps doing the same thing over and over and yet expects a different result? Is it because we struggle with our own immaturity? Being immature like the one who thinks that wishing and getting are the same thing, or at least should be? Whatever the case, it is true that we are people in need of saving. But will we call out? Can we call out? And more questions. What is it that causes us to fall into dangerous patterns? What is it that makes us yearn for and at the same time resent the help we need? What is it that causes us to stand at the edge of the deep end over and over and even jump in again and again and either imagine that we are owed our salvation or else we are unworthy of being saved or even worse, that if we pretend we are safe, then we are. We are strange creatures with strange minds and sometimes hard hearts. There are times when we operate with the thinking that if someone comes and saves us, well, then something has been proven. Perhaps our worth in the universe has been proven. And maybe the warnings of danger have been disproven. See, I told you I would be okay. See, I told you I could do whatever I want and nothing bad would happen. On the other hand, there are times when we refuse to call out. And then when no one comes, we feel cast aside. See, if someone cared, they would have known that I needed help. And here's another question I think about in these times of danger. Is salvation external? That is, must it come from out there? Or will it arise from within? Maybe we have often thought that salvation is external, that someone will, someone must swoop in to save us. But what if that isn't always the case? What if it isn't always the case that the salvation we need is beyond us, outside of us? What if sometimes it is within us? Of course, sometimes our salvation is the action that someone else takes, or maybe even the action that we take ourselves, the action that physically saves us, doing whatever it is that mitigates the danger in a physical, active way. But it seems to me as well that sometimes our salvation is more tied up in our intentions, our commitments to acts of will, some of those finally becoming intentions and commitments that are more selfless than selfish, or maybe we make a saving adjustment to our posture or our perspective. Maybe we decide to be less troublesome, or we intentionally seek to be more gracious, or we decide to be more trusting, or we commit to being more carefully aware of how others around us may be at risk. And that internal change, that internal adjustment that we make starts to chase away the darkness. It pushes off the danger. And then what saves us perhaps isn't just the action we took, but the attitude we adopted. A change of heart is what saves us from drowning. Or maybe the community collaborates somehow to save us. Maybe our Savior isn't just the one person who dives in at the opposite end of the pool and reaches us first. But maybe it's the crowd that sounds the alarm and the big sister who, after she warned us, still reaches out for us even though we did not listen. Or the circle of concerned faces that gathers round with towels and words of comfort, relief, and joy after it's all over. Maybe the salvation comes in bunches then, in circles. And then that act of external rescue shifts something 
internally as well. We learn to step back from the edge. What is your salvation need? What is our salvation need? What rescue? What saving? The season of Advent marks a time of waiting, of waiting for the Savior. Or maybe the waiting we do is more nuanced than that. Maybe it is waiting to come to a point of realization about all of what we need in order to be saved. Maybe we need some time to come to terms with the dangers around us, with the risks we are engaging, with the possibility that our own safety is not entirely within our control. Maybe we need a time of waiting for our stubbornness to recede, our fearfulness to come into better perspective, our anxiety to settle. One of the things you will notice as our congregation moves through Advent and worship is that this year we have adopted this overall Advent theme of waiting for the light. How does the light come into the world again is the question to which we will keep returning. It's a good question, I think, because the deep end of the pool is darkness. Our stubborn insistence that we can swim on our own is darkness. Our fear that nobody will come when we make the bad decision or we take the foolish step is darkness. Our internal depression, our lack of hope, our hurt and pain and grief is darkness. The injustice that we see in the world and our own participation in the systems that sustain such injustice is darkness. And we need to be saved from danger and from darkness. How does the light come into the world again? How will we be saved? There is a reminder from the psalm from the people who sang it in worship all those centuries ago, as well as we who speak it into our own worshiping today, a reminder that our relationship to God is uneven, unequal. And there are times when it is a relationship that confuses us as much as it comforts us. We are dependent, and sometimes we are scared of that fact, and sometimes we are resentful. We want to do it all on our own, and yet we know we can't. It's all there in the psalm in the words of God's people in their prayers. It is truth that we need to be saved and we cannot do it ourselves. But there is, at the same time, something of God's light already in us, in each of us, in all of us together. Can you sense it? somewhere deeper than our fears or our resentments or our confusion or our distress, there is that little spark of the divine coming to light, coming to life again. I said it earlier, God help us. I say it not as a cry of desperation or a word of sarcasm. I say it as a reminder that we wait for the divine spark. We wait for God to be incarnated again. We wait for help and rescue. We wait for light. God, help us. Come to us. Come to save us. Amen.